Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, I learned this song. And I don't know how old of a song it is. I tried to look it up this week. Nobody knows who wrote it. But I'm going to sing it. And if you know it, you'll know it. There's a flag flown high from the castle of my heart. From the castle of my heart. From the castle of my heart. There's a flag flown high from the castle of my heart. For the king is in residence there. Y'all heard that song? No. Yeah, I, I, I thought maybe it's a Pentecostal thing, and I was raised Pentecostal, so don't know how many of y'all there are in here. But uh, yeah, I grew up singing that song. There's a flag flown high from the castle of my heart for the king is in residence there. Couldn't find out who wrote it. Don't really even know when. The, it shows up in like 1981 in a kid's video, and the copyright says unknown. But it had to come from England because that's pretty much the practice of their kings and queens. Um, maybe you've heard of Buckingham Palace in London. It's the headquarters of the British royal monarchy, and it's Queen Elizabeth's home base. It's her residence in London. Uh, throughout the year, it flies a flag over it. It flies the Union Jack, the flag of Great Britain. But when Queen Elizabeth is staying there, and not in one of her other castles, I think she spends a lot of time in Scotland, um, and I would too if I could, you know, but she spends a lot of time there. But when she's in London, they swap out the Union Jack for her personal flag, her personal coat of arms. And it announces to the whole world that the queen is here. All the tourists come and they see the flag. The queen's here. All the people who live in the area and walk around, ride around in their little black cabs, they know the queen is here. It announces to the world that the queen is in residence at her palace. And that song is supposed to say the same thing. It's supposed to teach us as people, as kids, what it means to have Jesus be present with us. That it ought to be obvious to everybody. No incognito Christians. Can't fly under the radar. If we're living our lives for Jesus, it ought to be obvious to the world the king is in residence here. It's on public, full display. And in our passage this morning, I think Jesus is doing something like that for the people in Capernaum. He is planting his flag, and he's raising it high because he wants everybody who's around him to know that he's the king, and he's in residence there. In fact, I think you could say that what Jesus does in this passage we're seeing this week and the passage we're going to see next week is he makes it obvious that the way he's going to bring his kingdom is going to be totally unexpected than what the people were looking for. He's going to bring his kingdom by powerfully exerting his authority over all things. He's not going to ask their permission. He's not going to take a straw poll. How many of you guys want me to be king? Raise your hand. No, he just comes in and he plants the flag and he raises it high and he says, I'm the king and I'm exerting my authority over all things. See, the passage we read this morning is really the first section in what I think Mark gives us as a 24 hours in the life of Jesus, like that old Jack Bauer show. The hand, kick, the little seconds ticking down on the clock. This is 24 hours in the life of Jesus. It begins, he goes into the uh, synagogue on the Sabbath morning, and he teaches, and then he leaves, and we're going to see next week, he goes straight to Simon Peter's house where he heals his mother-in-law. And once evening comes and the people are allowed to move freely, the whole city of Capernaum comes to the doorway to be healed by him. And he stays up late healing people. The next morning, before the sun gets up, he heads off to a desolate place to pray to his father where his disciples find him, and they head out of town. 
That's 24 hours in the life of Jesus. He's taking up residence, planting his flag, exerting his authority over all things. See, to this point, Mark has focused our attention in on Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, the Son of God, the one promised by the prophets, proclaimed as near by John, believed on by the people. The beloved Son of God, who's anointed with the Spirit. He's focused our attention on his message. Jesus came out of the wilderness preaching, Behold, the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He's even given us a glimpse of Jesus' first task of calling his first disciples. But now he wants us to see the business that Jesus came to be about. What does it mean that Jesus is king? What does it mean that he's the son of God? And it means first that he's going to exert his authority over spiritual truth. Over spiritual truth. See, faithful Jews went to the synagogue on Saturdays, their Sabbath day, just like we attend church on Sunday. They came to pray and to read scripture and to hear a lesson. Synagogue actually is a Greek word that means assembly. And I, and I think that this assembly that we have here is patterned off of what the Jews did. There's a great commonality to it. But there's one major difference. Whereas most Christian churches have a sermon delivered by a minister, a person who's ordained and set apart to the task, the president of the synagogue hardly ever preached on Sabbath days. Instead, what he did was he pointed out a man in the crowd, qualified man who'd gone through his bar mitzvah, and he invited them up to give the day's lessons. And so that's what happened. He allowed the people to read the scriptures, and then he looked at Jesus and invited Jesus up, and Jesus sat down to teach. And Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught. Um, Luke does in Luke 4 in the synagogue in Nazareth, but Mark doesn't tell us. He just wants us to see the effect Jesus' teaching has. Because while Jesus might have performed a typical task, something that any man in the synagogue could have done, the way he did it was totally out of the ordinary. Mark tells us in verse 22 that the people were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible, you've heard of scribes before. They're, they're like everywhere. And scribes were just professional people. They performed secular duties, and they performed religious duties. They were educated, learned people. They could read, and they could write, and they'd been specially trained to interpret documents. If you want to know what a contract meant, and what your obligations might would mean to uphold your end of the bargain, you'd go to a scribe, a person who could read and could write, and was trained in deciphering the right course of action, who could judge authoritatively on what the contract meant. But the majority of the scribes we read about in the New Testament were religious scribes. They were professionally trained in understanding the meaning of the law. Because of that, when they stood up to speak, they spoke with a certain authority. They spoke with the authority that comes from being an expert in your field, from having gone to school and got the degree and doing it day in and day out. You know, the people you would see on TV pontificating about all sorts of things because they are the recognized authority in their field. The scribes were the recognized authorities on the scriptures and what it meant to be a faithful Jew. If you had a question about the scripture, you didn't go to the president of the synagogue. You found your nearest scribe, the person who knew better than anybody else what the scriptures meant. And that scribe would give you an answer and he'd say, well, the great rabbi Hillel says this, or 
The great Rabbi Shammai says that, and he would give you the footnotes and the reference, and he'd tell you what book you need to go read to find it deeper and deeper. They quoted scriptures, cited the rabbis to prove their points. Because of that, they had a derived authority, an authority that came from their learning, from their experience. But when Jesus taught, he taught with a different kind of authority. Not an authority that was rooted in what Rabbi Hillel had said, or Rabbi Shammai had said, but an authority that was rooted in his identity as the Son of God and King. That's why he could say in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4, 21, after he read from Isaiah 61, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He doesn't say, well, Rabbi Hillel said that this passage refers to a coming Messiah who was going to usher in a messianic age of blessing on the people of Israel. It doesn't matter what Hillel said or Shammai said. What matters is the Messiah that those guys talked about is right here in front of you. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's the Son of God, the Messiah. He has an authority that's rooted in his person, not in footnotes and citations. He possesses the authority as king to legislate. That's why he could say in the Sermon on the Mount, which is just masterful, if you go home this afternoon and are trying to find something to do on the commercial breaks of your favorite football game, pull out Matthew chapter 5 and work your way through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and see Jesus the teacher, the lawgiver. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He doesn't tell us which rabbi said that, but you've heard it was said by those experts of the law that this is the way to honor God. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Listen, when Jesus comes to town, he exerts his authority over spiritual truth. It doesn't matter what the rabbis have taught you. What matters is what I say to you. I speak not on an authority derived from my knowledge or from my learning, but rooted in my identity as the Son of God and the King of kings. What I say goes. That's what Jesus is saying. He exerts his authority over spiritual truth. And y'all, we need to rediscover this about Jesus. You know, we're living in a day where the authority of spiritual truth is contested. Many people have pieced together their own unique religious outlook from all kinds of different sources. You know, there are people who are as likely to believe in the healing power of crystals as they are to believe in the value of prayer. And, and there's a segment of our population who legitimately believes that mankind came to be because an ancient race of advanced alien civilization came to earth and seeded humanity. They believe that rather than believing that a God created the world. And why not? We live in an anti-authoritarian age. The, the biggest population of religious people in our country is the spiritual nuns who have no religious affiliation. What does it mean to have authority to speak to spiritual matters? Does it mean to, to have the most ratings on the daily talk show, you know, like Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz? You know, do you listen to the person who has the most viewers? The most followers on Instagram, and you see all these spiritual gurus. I came across this video the other day of this guy doing Tibetan singing bowls and chanting and providing spiritual healing right through my iPhone. It was wonderful. Now it's crazy. What kind of authority is he? Why should I believe this guy? What's up with that? 
Now, we live in an age when the authority of spiritual truth is totally up for grabs, and I think Jesus wants to plant his flag once again. He wants to say, you want to know what is true? You want to know what is real? Are you really looking for some way to order your life, some way to find a foundation and a bottom to this endless mess? I'm it. Plant the flag, Jesus. Exert your authority over spiritual truth and guide us. Now, it'd be awesome if he would stroll in today and the professional scribe, Brad Mills, would tuck his Bible away and go sit down and soak up what the master had to say. But instead, I open up to you the word of God that Jesus himself breathed out. So you want to know spiritual truth? It's right here in this book. To any extent that I deviate from it, man, everything I say is worthless. But when God speaks, we ought to listen. Jesus exerts his authority over spiritual truth. All right, but number two, he exerted his authority over unclean spirits. And Jesus' teaching, it amazed the people, but it stirred up conflict, as truth always does. Now, it wasn't a nice three-point sermon that Jesus closed out with a beautiful poem that he'd memorized. It was really the opening salvo of a spiritual war. It was bunker buster bombs being planted in Capernaum. And it didn't take long for him to start speaking that his enemies showed their faces. I mean, I love the way Mark says it in verse 23. He says, and just then, like just right at that perfect timing, just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now I imagine, uh, I heard a couple of amens and I saw some nods and wide eyes on the first one. Like Jesus exerts his authority over spiritual truth. What do y'all think about demons? How, how, do you, how, do, where do, how do they fit into your conception of the spiritual world? Now, the Bible is pretty unequivocal from Genesis to Revelation that there are real spiritual beings. Um, we don't inhabit a cold and lifeless universe like here we are, just mankind, and that's all there is. The Bible says that there is a, a whole universe full of spiritual be beings. Originally, God created them to be what the author of the letter of the Hebrews calls his ministering spirits. They're to be his assistants that he sends out into the world to accomplish his task. They were supposed to live under his authority, doing what he said, going where he said go. Maybe you've heard that some of those angelic beings rebelled against him. And the Bible calls them evil spirits or unclean spirits or demons. And they live in open rebellion to God. They, their whole purpose is to subvert what God is doing in the world. And so they operate under the authority, not of God, but under this person the Bible calls Satan or the devil. And Paul talks about the devil like he's just a, an ordinary person, like he's a real thing. Uh, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that he's the God of this world. And he says in Ephesians 2 that he's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work among the sons of disobedience. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, you might have seen this this morning, that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that our enemy is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. You know, some people say that the demons we see in the Bible are sort of like the manifestation of mental illness that first century people didn't yet know about. But the Bible is clear. There are real spiritual beings, and they're not all good. First century people 
were surely not moderns, so they didn't know everything we know. But they knew mental illness. They had categories for psychosis. But they had a special category for demon possession. And even they thought it was pretty rare. And we, we imagine because all these instances of demon possession in the Gospels are like every page. We imagine that this is like the Wild West. And everywhere you look, there's a demon hiding under a rock or manifesting himself in a person. But, you know, in all the ancient sources, there are, are like three or four major exorcists. And there are lots of stories about exorcisms. But most of the stories are just repetitions of the same events. There is one person who has attributed multiple exorcisms and an unheard of authority over demons. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. And what he did was totally unique. I mean, they knew of demon possessions. It wasn't super common. And they knew of exorcists, but only a few. Jesus was something totally different. The Jews had special prayers of deliverance for demon-possessed people that involved certain rituals and incantations like magical words. They would try to figure out the demon's name because they believed that if you knew the name, you'd have special authority over it and it would have to obey you. And it's like the demon in this story is trying to turn the tables on Jesus and he's like, I know who you are. You're Jesus of Nazareth. You have no power over me. But that didn't quite work out because Jesus has in himself not a derived authority from some kind of incantation and magical word. He's the Son of God. The demon knows who he is because he's seen him before. This is the Son of God who's been with the Father from all eternity, ruling and reigning over all the angels. He was there when Satan rebelled against God and was cast down to the earth. The demons aren't discovering something new. They're coming face to face with this guy they thought they'd finally gotten rid of. Here he is, though, Jesus of Nazareth. And so all Jesus has to do is say, Be quiet. Probably stronger than that. We don't let our kids say it, but I think he says something like, shut up and come out of him. Like, don't even speak another word. And the demon obeyed. It wasn't like, okay, and got out. No, he screeched and threw the man to the ground. It was scary, frightening. I'm sure all the people around were like backing up. What's going on here? This is crazy. I've never seen anything like it. But what Jesus was doing was exerting his authority over the unclean spirits. The demon thought, hey, this is my turf. This is my ground. You don't belong here. And Jesus said, no, actually, I do. He went behind enemy lines. He planted the flag. He took the fight to Satan. And he proved that he was the king who was coming to stake his claim. I do have authority here. You're the one who needs to keep quiet. You need to get out of this guy. And that's how Jesus always works. And, and I think that this is something we also need to remember. You know, there is a resurgence of interest in the spiritual world read an article last year in Christianity Today called The Protestant Exorcist. It's about this Anglican guy, Eric Younger, who uh, is a, a set-apart exorcist. That's all he does. He goes around casting out demons. And he seems to think, and, and I think it's a, a widespread thing around the world, that uh, demonic activity seems to be increasing, but especially so in the West, like America and Europe. And I think that's because you've probably noticed the prevalence of sort of demonic and pagan imagery. The fastest growing world religion, in the Western Hemisphere at least, is the veneration of the Santa Muerte. And I don't know if you know about this. It started in Mexico City. But it's an amalgamation, an evil concoction of a holy death. The fastest growing religion in the Western Hemisphere. Think about that. You've probably seen the prevalence of pagan imagery and, and Wiccans. 
Uh, it's one of the faster-growing religions among uh, young people. Talk about crystals and all kinds of stuff. It's everywhere, and you can't help but think that when a person starts allowing their mind to go there and to do rituals and seances and talking about hexes, those things might end up working. And it might be because there's some other spiritual being who's invested in seeing God's plan in the world come to an end. And at the same time that's happening, at the same time our culture opens itself up to all kind of unknown spiritual realities. The Barner Research Group tells us that most Christians believe Satan is a symbol of evil and not a personal being. So think about it. On the one hand, you've got a world opening itself up to unknown spiritual realities. I mean, what is spiritual truth? Who is an authority? Before the Christians came around, everybody was pagan and worshipped trees. Why can't we get back to that? And on the other hand, you have a bunch of Christians, like us, who say, I don't know if I believe about all these demons. I think maybe it's mental illness or something. I'm sorry. Call me super. <laughs> Y'all can call me superstitious. I've had to wrestle with this this week because it's kind of more convenient to inhabit a world that doesn't have demons everywhere. But call me crazy, but I don't think Jesus came to do battle with an idea or an abstract symbol or a concept of evil. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And Paul says in Colossians 2 that through the death of Jesus on the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus. That was Jesus' sole purpose, that the world lay in darkness and bondage, Satan ruling over us, keeping us blinded, closed off to the things of God. But Jesus came to disarm him, to do battle with him, to go behind enemy lines and exert his authority and say, be quiet, come out of him. Jesus is real, and the devil is real, and Jesus came to disarm him so that he didn't have power and authority over his people. It reminds me of the story that James George told. I don't know if y'all were here when James George was teaching us on prayer on Wednesday nights back at the beginning of 2020. But he told me this story about a missionary who worked with the Wycliffe Bible Translators. And uh, she had been assigned a group in uh, East Asia, lived in a high mountain village, and all but three months of the year, their village was totally closed off from the outside world because of ice. And so Wycliffe makes sure that people can hear the gospel for the first time. And so she developed um, a Bible for them and learned their language. And when she'd gotten all her work done, she went to their village and uh, went in. The, the village was all gathered around this little girl who was sick when she got there. And she comes to find out it's the chief's daughter. And so she says, can I pray for your daughter? And the chief says, yes. And the little girl got better. And so the chief was like, well, we'll hear what you have to say. And so she shared the gospel of Jesus with them, and they all gave their life to Christ. The whole village surrenders to Jesus. Okay, but get ready, because this is the crazy part. All right, so as she's walking around with them, spending the three months with them, instructing them in the basics of discipleship and what it means, she sees all these carved images, these wooden statues, hanging over the doors of their tents. And so she asks them, what are all these little things? And they said, well, as long as anybody from our village can remember, we have been tormented by spirits from high in the mountains. And every night when we go to sleep, they come down to attack our village. But these little statues keep them away. Now, how do you think about that? Oh, they're a bunch of superstitious village people, right? They don't know what they're talking about. They're primitive in their understanding. There aren't really spirits that come down. 
I don't know. So she says, well, you, you don't need those anymore. That the Jesus you've given your life to and are going to live for has victory over all those things. All you need to do is say, we belong to Jesus, go away. And so they practiced, we belong to Jesus, go away. And they took down their little idols and they burned them or threw them away. And at the end of three months, she left. But she came back the next year when the ice melted. And as she was walking into the village, the people ran out to see her. And the first thing they said was, it works. It works. We say we belong to Jesus, go away, and the spirits leave us alone. And that's a powerful idea. And I wonder if maybe we shouldn't learn that phrase ourselves. We belong to Jesus, go away. When the evil spirit of discouragement and division breaks into our home and church, we belong to Jesus, go away. When the unclean spirits of lust and desire threaten to chain us up again, we belong to Jesus. Go away. King Jesus has authority here. There's nothing in all of creation that can stand against him. He's ruling and he's reigning. And so that's why I say to you this morning that King Jesus builds his kingdom by powerfully exerting his authority over all things. All other sources of religious truth are nothing compared to the God who made all things and speaks it all into existence. He alone dictates what is right and true. There's no spiritual force on the face of the earth, not an abstract idea, and especially no spiritual person who can stand against him. He's already disarmed them. He lived a sinless life and died on the cross so that he could bring the devil's works to nothing. He's exerting his authority, and it's authority that's rooted in his identity as Messiah, Son of God, the Holy One of God. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit of God who anointed him for his task, and it's exerted over all things. But get this. That authority put on display causes people to marvel. That's this word that Mark continually uses. They were amazed. They were amazed. They were amazed. They were amazed. It's going to be throughout the Gospel of Mark. Because what can you do when you see something like that? You have to just stand there in awe. It actually means to be alarmed. They realized that they were in the presence of someone who could command evil spirits. Whoa, what even is this? Who is this? They marveled at him, but I wish they would have gone one step further. And maybe it's a step you can take. I wish they would have worshipped him. They're fine to debate among themselves, but they never get to that point where they bow down before him and acknowledge him as totally unique. If he is who he says he is, and if he can do what he says he can do, then surely this must be the Son of God. It takes eight chapters in Mark's Gospel for a human being to finally get to the point where they say, you are Jesus, the Son of God. Mark, and uh, Peter does it. Why couldn't a person right then and there acknowledge, Jesus, you are Lord. If you can command the unclean spirits, if you can speak with this authority, then you must be God in the flesh. And so I wonder, does Jesus have authority over you? He's exerted it over the teaching. He's exerted over the spirits. What about you? Does Jesus have authority over your life? Can people tell by the way you live that the king is in residence here? That he alone determines what I believe and where I go and what I do? Do people know that Jesus is Lord of your life? And that's what the Bible says, that God sent his son Jesus to live that sinless life and to die a sacrificial death on the cross, to be raised on the third day, 
overcoming death, hell, and the grave. And he promises that anybody who calls to him, says Jesus is Lord, he'll save them. The authority of Jesus isn't something he just exerted then. It's something he continues to exert forever and ever. Will you bow your head with me and pray?